coming up on this episode of the Work Not Work Show? It's easy just to fly up, you know, 100 feet, hover in a spot and shoot back at the ground, but it doesn't capture the audience or it doesn't tell a story like, you know, doing something more dynamic. And you're, like you say, your example with the Steadicam is exactly right. It's, it, the, the tool is an important part of that, but it is the, – the thing that I found with kind of the drone aerial business is it's, you know, it's part technology, it's part science, but it's also a large part art. That's Mark Langell of Flight Lab of Halifax, Nova Scotia. Mark has what sounds like a dream job. He flies drones for a living. More with Mark in a moment. I'm Terence C. Gannon, and welcome to the premier episode of the Work Not Work Show. Work Not Work is the show about people who have turned their passion into their profession. In each episode, we talk to people who have turned what they love to do into what they do for a living. We hope to provide an entertaining blend of inspiration, ideas, and information for people who want to be inspired by their work. My guest on this episode is Mark Langell, owner of Flight Lab, a provider of commercial drone services based out of Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. Mark founded Flight Lab in 2011 initially as a supplier of parts and information to the do-it-yourself drone hobbyist. More recently, Flight Lab has evolved into the provision of commercial drone services, specializing in aerial photography and video. He is regularly called upon by local, regional, and national media to comment on developments in the industry. Prior to founding Flight Lab, Mark worked in the IT field for 17 years. Stay with us for more on flying drones for a living. Mark, welcome to the Work Not Work show. Oh, thanks for having me. May I also thank you for being our very first guest. I hope you're the first of many. Fingers crossed. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's great to get uh, great on at the beginning of this. It uh, certainly sounds like uh, you know an interesting series for sure. Thanks very much. Please tell us a little bit about Flight Lab and the history of how it came to be. Um, kind of, as you'd mentioned, we we had started you know a few years ago now, more just kind of a kind of on the hobby side, really, um, when kind of the whole multi-copter side of RC started to take off was really, um, you know, everything, everyone was looking for parts and everything really came from China and it took a month to get here. Um, so we started kind of, you know, as we were building our own own pieces more as a hobby side, we started bringing in, you know, some extra parts and that kind of just evolved into um, starting to try to be a, a Canadian um, source for a lot of the hobby parts people were looking for. Although it may be hard to imagine given all the coverage they get, but for listeners who are not familiar with drones, can you describe them in a little more detail and the role that they play in Flight Lab's business? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really, you know, as basically, you know, the media and the public are kind of look at it towards this, you know, drones is kind of being the new kind of the catchphrase of kind of what has been basically RC model aircraft for the last, you know, 50, 60 years. Um, so it's really, you know, for anyone that's kind of in the hobby side, it, it's not really anything new. It's just really, I think the biggest changes in what we kind of term with drones, and I'll use air quotes on that, is more um, kind of on the multi-copter side where, you know, they're, they're small simple systems that a lot of people can 
fly more easily than your traditional RC aircraft where, you know, traditional RC used to be, you know, spend six months building um, to then crash it within the first five minutes and then start over again. Uh, the new systems are much more user friendly. And I think that's a lot of where we're seeing the growth and, and the big change is really the accessibility of these systems and just the technology, you know, makes pretty much anyone being able to, uh, to fly these now. And just quickly, if you can, describe the role that they play in Flight Lab's business. How is it that you're using them exactly? Yeah, so where we came at it from, like like I say, originally we, we were really meaning bringing in parts for people to build their own, but that's really evolved. What we mainly do now is more on the service side where we're actually providing um, aerial photo and video services using drones. So we have a number of systems that we fly. Basically, it's it's for, for what we do, it's mainly it's to get a camera in the air, be it to get a photo off a property, shooting video for you know, a TV commercial or a film or doing even um, applications like mapping, uh, mapping. We did some quarry work mapping a quarry, and so it's really anytime we need to get uh, a camera in the in the air, that's really where drones play its role for us. They're, they become the tool to be basically a flying tripod. This will seem like a dumb question for anybody who knows Halifax. It's a spectacularly beautiful East Coast equivalent of Vancouver, is what I would call it. But what other than its physical beauty inclined you to set up Flight Lab in Halifax? Uh, I grew up in Nova Scotia, so it's it's kind of where I've kind of grown up in and used to. Um, it's really, you know, it's within Nova Scotia. It's it's the, really the only big city where there's a lot of really um, diverse industries happening. Um, I, I had grown up in rural Nova Scotia, uh, went to school in Halifax. Uh, after graduation, moved out to Alberta for a number of years, get some experience, and then finally made the trek back again. It's East Coast people are generally like to stay on the East Coast, so they always end up coming back. And, uh, you know, Halifax was kind of, you know, always a city that I enjoyed. It's, you know, it's it's not a huge city like Toronto, you know, or Montreal, but it's kind of, you know, it's a very old city. It's got a lot of history to it. Um, and I think it's that for us, it's really that kind of rural and urban aspect. You kind of get the best of both worlds. Um, and then growing up, being surrounded by the water when you're growing up, um, being landlocked in Alberta for five years, it's you know it, it's hard to get away from the water. So a lot of it was really just uh, coming back to my roots for the most part. I guess that's one of the benefits of starting your own business, and we'll talk about this more in a moment, is that you were able to make that choice. You're not bound to moving to a city where the work is. You can create the business where you live, where you prefer to live, as you have in Halifax. For the bulk of my you know, past now, it seems like 20, 25 years experience in IT, the mo- majority of my work has always been more as a kind of consultant, more so than an employee. So I, that kind of mentality to business has always been there. It's really, you know, be it doing IT software development, it's really much the same, only this now it's kind of more transitioning on to the drone side. Can you remember that moment in time when you became aware of the whole drone industry? And if you can describe that experience for us, what was it like exactly? Would you call it a eureka moment, for example, or maybe something else? Yeah, I guess, you know, I, I as growing up as, you know, in, as a, um, I guess when I was, you know, a young teenager, uh, I was involved in RC a bit. So, I, you know, I had built traditional RC aircraft, um, grew up in a family where we did a lot of hands-on maker type building. My father was into ultralight, so we always had aircraft around. Um then basically growing up and kind of going off to school and going into university kind of got away from from that part of part of my past and then uh, yeah it was probably you know think back it's probably like 6 or 7 years ago 
um, started seeing on YouTube and some other places, you know, people flying these, you know, quadcopters and multicopters. And it was like, hey, that it just it, the wow factor of seeing something that was like, you know, literally this device that's kind of hovering there in front of you. And it was, you know, fairly easy to control and not a traditional kind of fixed wing aircraft. It was something, you know, hey, you can fly this in your backyard. You can put a camera on it um, and just all the technology involved in it. So it was it was a lot of the things I had interest in, be it um, software, be it hardware, be it building something. So it was it was a lot of kind of passions that I had in the past kind of came together into to these devices. It was like, hey, I really want to build one of these, um, you know, not knowing that it would basically turn into doing work with them down the road, but just more really of the hobby interest of, uh, you know, these look like cool new devices to, you know, play around with in the backyard. So a confluence of interest then. That's actually a perfect segue into my next question. You mentioned in your previous answer that you didn't realize at the time that you wanted to turn this into your profession. Can you tell us a little bit about that moment when you knew that you were going to try and make this a business that is something you could make a living at? And can you describe your thoughts regarding that shift from a passion for the subject, which you obviously have, into making a living with it? Did you have any concerns as part of making that decision? Yeah, I mean, everything that I've always been involved in, it's it's always is, you know, I go into it 100%. So it's very much, you know, the, the fact that it's hobby versus work, that I never really make that full separation. It's it's kind of, you know, there's always some level of overlap. With this, it kind of, like I say, it, it evolved that if, you know, first started building my own, um, was like, hey, parts were hard to get. So it was basically, you know, maybe there's an opportunity to start selling parts to other hobbyists, be it first just kind of in the Halifax area. And then a lot of just, you know, well, I can sell online just as easily and, and not need a storefront. I believe that's what Chris Anderson, formerly of Wired Magazine, called the industrialization of his hobbies, which is a bit of a curse. It does sound as though there may have been an entrepreneurial streak in your family. The fact that you look at every one of these things as a potential opportunity for business. Do you come from a family of entrepreneurs? Did your brothers, sisters, and parents get involved in entrepreneurial ventures as well? Yeah, to a degree, uh, my my back my family's background is commercial fishery, so it's always been that very independent. Um, you know, you you you're running basically a business for yourself. You know, running being a commercial fisherman is much like being an independent. You know, um, worker. You you know, you you're your own boss, and that that mentality's always been there. And like like I say, it's kind of transitioned with me through kind of my IT career was never really happy being just a, you know, cog in the machine at one company. It was much more wanting to bounce around to, you know, always looking at something new and not wanting to be doing any one thing for, you know, you know, the next 20 years of your life. It's very much, it has to stay new and dynamic and consulting gives you that flexibility on the IT side. And, and really this is just an extension of that. And and kind of mixed with kind of that entrepreneurial background of my family, it's it, it's coming from that maker mentality as well. It's like, you know, we were either building equipment for fishing or you know other projects like say building ultralight aircraft, building windmills, building hang gliders. It's you know it's there was always that happening in my house, so it just became that that's just normal, I guess. Where when you kind of look back on it now, and and I've talked to this on my partners recently is around, it's like, you know, you kind of take for granted that that's your background and that you, you know, if you need something, you just build it. You start to realize not everyone can do that. So it's, you know, you kind of, you can leverage that kind of, you know, hobby and entrepreneurial mentality to be a business. So there's always been that aspect. 
Your family certainly seems to have a diverse range of interests. It's true in my experience as well what that people who have grown up in an environment of a maker family, as you call it, or a family that has been independent like with the commercial fishery, that that's where the original entrepreneurial streak comes from. So how did your professional career up to founding Flight Lab relate to your work now, and did you find it was useful? It seemed to have been very focused on IT. Presumably that was code and system administration, those kinds of things. Has that been helpful in developing Flight Lab's business? Uh, definitely. I mean, for the, really the two aspects where it helped was from the IT side, just dealing with software, particularly with, you know, with early drone systems was where you were literally, you know, having to load firmware and configure software. And there was a lot of programming side to set up, you know, how the systems work. That certainly helped in the fact that, you know, you, I wasn't coming to it from with no computer background. So that kind of that hurdle was out of the way. Um, I think the second aspect of that really that helps is just running a small business, consulting business in general. Um, that, you know, as much as, you know, that the, the uh, hobby is out kind of, you know, the fun part is out flying the drone. It's like any business. There's the business aspect. And I think that's a lot of what people overlook. So having not really started, you know, I wasn't coming at this from, you know, um, you know, square one, already had a business. I've run my own small business. So there, that really kind of leveraged things in terms of uh, just how to kind of operate a business in general. Well, that again is a great lead into my next question. From what you've described so far, it sounds like you have the dream job, something that many of us would like to do at some point or another. Can you describe for us what aspects of Flight Labs business you don't enjoy? In other words, what parts of the business, to be candid, could you live without? I guess like any job, I mean, it, it always has its days where, you know, it, it kind of gets to you in some aspect or another. I mean, for the most part, I do enjoy it um, kind of end to end, even kind of like on the regulatory side, you know, the red tape side, you know, it, it's hard to enjoy red tape at any level, but, you know, it, it's certainly something I know is there and dealing with it is, you know, kind of part of it. I, I think the, the kind of the aspect that a lot of people miss, um, you know, be it turning a drone or turning a um, hobby into a business or even starting a new business is they often overlook all the other aspects of running a business. And and this, I think, is a good example. I see it online a lot where it's people like, oh, I have a drone and I want to get into the business. And it's like the, the going out and flying the drone probably takes up the least amount of time of all the tasks that are there. And, and so it's I think you have to go in with that mindset. If, if you're going into it to think, oh, I'm going to you know, start a drone business because I like to go out and fly, you know, every day of the week. The flying every day of the week rarely happens. It, it's, you know, for every hour you're probably out flying, there's probably three to four hours of planning the project, administration, dealing with permits, dealing with insurance, dealing with red tape. So it's, you have to go into it with that mentality that it's, yes, it's, you know, it is a fun job when you're out flying on, you know, a, a an interesting work site or working on a project for a client. Um, but that's not the majority of the work you do. So I think it's looking at it realistically that, uh, you know, it's, it, it's not just your hands on the sticks in the air. What you say is interesting because many of the posts on the Flight Lab blog focus on the regulations related to the use of drones. And you've also touched on that in your previous statement. Was that something you were expecting? I mean, were you expecting that degree of regulation in the business and as early as it seems to have occurred? 
we kind of knew that going in. I mean, because we had kind of been monitoring and being involved in it from the hobby side, we'd always kind of been looking. It's like, you know, if we wanted to, if someone came to us and say we wanted to do, you know, a commercial job, what would be involved in doing that? So we started our research, you know, probably, you know, before we actually started doing any commercial work, we probably started researching this uh, a year to a year and a half ahead of time, just saying, okay, what are the regulations? What are we going to need in terms of, you know, insurance? What do we need in terms of, a, you know, licenses and permits? So it didn't it didn't come to us as a surprise because we, we knew that there's, you know, doing anything in any business, there's going to be red tape involved. It's just how much is there. Um, I think there was probably more to it than maybe I first expected, or at least it wasn't laid out as easily. It, you know, it simply wasn't, a matter of like, oh, I want to run a drone business, I'll go off to Transport Canada and I'll get a permit, or I'll fill out an application and get whatever license I need. Um, I think the eye-opener was just how poorly defined kind of the industry was in terms of, yeah, there's a process to get permission, but it's not, you know, it's, there's no application form, there's no fill something out and, you know, wait a week and get it back. It was really you're starting with a blank piece of paper and you're doing all your own research. So it's, I think there was, you know, certainly more legwork um, getting up to speed than I would think probably exists in a lot of other more established businesses. So that, that's probably, you know, um, again, not really a big surprise to it, but it probably took longer than we would have first imagined. Frankly, it sounds like a bit of a nightmare. However, your Twitter and blog posts do make it seem as though you're thoroughly committed to the development of the regulatory framework beyond what's required for operating Flight Lab itself, to the development of a reasonable set of regulations for the drone industry in a broader sense. This obviously takes a lot of time and would appear to have been a thankless job. So why spend the time and energy on trying to get it right for the industry overall as opposed to simply doing what's necessary for you to get your job done? Yeah, I mean, yeah, you said it right. It certainly can be a thankless job. Um, you know, it's why I do it again. I think it's being. Um, I'm always fully invested in what I'm doing, and when we kind of looked at the drone business in general, it was a little bit different than any other kind of industry I was involved in before because it it really wasn't established. So. We, it wasn't as if I was coming into the IT industry. I wasn't the first person to ever do IT. You know, there was an established um, system there. People had done it in the past. So you, there was kind of a path to follow. On the drone side, that really didn't exist, particularly on the on the smaller side of things where it wasn't a big industrial drone. It was like, you know, people were taking these hobby systems, building systems that could do commercial work. Uh, and there just wasn't anything there. So it was Kind of as part of our research, it really was like I had a lot of material that I collected just in terms of um, doing our own research for our own business. The decision to kind of put it out there was, you know, it, it's kind of a, a reverse marketing approach. It's, you know, being that knowledge expert, it's like, hey, there's no one in the industry really right now that's kind of that voice of the industry. Um, not that I want to be the only person that's talking about it, but I've seen it as much as an opportunity as. Our approach was, we're not very good at marketing. Let's put it that way. We're not we're not business salespeople. We're we're technical people. We, we know what we like. We know how things operate. Um, so instead of kind of going the marketing route to kind of push your business, it, it was a conscious effort to become more the uh, knowledge expert. And and to do that, you really had to push information out to kind of share it. So there's a lot of giving away of information that um, you know I've helped. Um, some of our client or, or uh, competition directly, for example, where I've built UAVs for my competitors, I've written SFOCs for my competitors. And some people look at that and say, well, 
isn't that costing you business? And in some cases, it does. I know we've lost work directly to competition, but we've also gained on that as well. So it's, you know, it's, it's the balance overall. Just for those who may not be familiar with the SFOC acronym, what does that stand for exactly? Um, it's basically, it's a special flight operating certificate. So in Canada, that's really the mechanism by which you're basically legal to fly a commercial UA, or a commercial drone. Okay, it was just a term that not everybody would be familiar with. I think you've already answered this question, but your posts on the Flight Lab blog often focus on how-to type advice. I guess that clearly fits in with this notion of being the knowledge leader in the field and using that as a marketing tool for Flight Lab. It is. I mean, and that's where that kind of benefits us in a lot of cases is what, you know, well, people see our blog, they come to me where they, when they may want, oh, I need assistance on, you know, getting a permit to fly a drone. Some people will just use the free information. Some people come to us and, hey, you know, as a paid service, can you help us with this, you know, consult to do that. So we, we get that benefit. Um, the second part of that really comes from to, we're getting to be known as kind of, you know, the knowledge experts within Canada. So um, when the media is looking to do, um, you know, press on a drone story, we're becoming the go-to people for that. So again, it comes back to that being recognized as a, an industry expert, and then the free marketing that kind of spins off of that. You know, we, we don't get paid to go on most, um, you know, news programs, but, you know, we do get the marketing uh, out of that. So, you know, someone's watching it. Our name gets put out there. We get recognized for that. So that's, you know, it's the long it's the long-term way of marketing. It's not the quick and dirty way. So it's, but that's been our approach is, you know, build that base, become the, um, you know, be- become the company that's seen as the professional organized knowledge expert in the industry, um, you know, and hope that that builds you a nice, you know, you build your client base around that. It's just being, you know, the, the recognized leader. It reminds me of that quote, that there's only one thing worse than being talked about, and that's not being talked about. So by putting yourself in the center of a lot of these things, there's a good way, that's a good way of getting your name out. When I was looking for a subject for this show, for example, Flight Lab came to mind for this very reason. I think it's a very effective strategy. What's the one thing about the business that really keeps you up at night? I mean, that you really worry about in terms of the long-term health of Flight Lab's business going forward? Um, I mean, there's a couple different things. I mean, the, the regulatory side is probably the biggest worry because it's the biggest unknown in terms of, um, you know, the, the biggest fear a lot of people have in the industry right now is the regulations are in this constant state of flux, uh, and it only is going to take one kind of bad accident, and then you don't know what that near knee-jerk reaction may be, be it um, at a federal level or even, you know, if there's an accident, say, in a city park, are the city's going to impose a no-drone policy because that's the easy solution. And all of that impacts, you know, commercial operators. If, if for example, I mean, if the city says, okay, we don't want drones in the city anymore, um, this is, you know, we're, we're just putting a policy in, that impacts what we do. So it's, there's that fear of the unknown of, you know, it only takes one bad media story to kind of make things go off the rails. In December of 2015, you wrote an article which you posted on the Flight Lab blog entitled Drone Accidents in Perspective. From my reading of that, it pretty much stated that you felt it's really just a matter of time before there was a serious accident of some sort involving a drone. Can you tell us a little more about why you wrote this and put it out there at that particular time? I think it was more really to kind of give people like, you know, a base that, you know, the reality is 
there's going to be an accident. Pretending it's not going to happen really doesn't help anyone. Um, and and, it, and I sometimes get accused of that. It's like you know, it's it's a very negative approach. You know, you you know, you're being pessimistic, and it's like I don't see it so much as pessimistic. I, I just look at both sides of it. It's like you know, drones are great tools and can do great things, but the reality is there's going to be an accident. You know. Every industry has accidents. Car, cars have accidents. We don't pretend they don't exist. So I think it's wanting to have that mentality of let's not ignore the negative, but let's be prepared to um, handle it. So if there is an accident, let, let's have an, you know, an industry voice that can go out there and say, look, there are respectable, safe, professional operators out there that take you know safety measures. What's happening is people that don't take those measures that's what happens so i think it's trying to have a balanced approach and you know it's and not be surprised by it's like you know someone gets hit with a drone and all of a sudden you know everyone's you know in panic mode it's like well that's the reality um you know better to be prepared for it than just pretend it's not going to happen i remember a long time ago just when they were getting started i interviewed an individual who was involved in the startup of an airline I won't say who it was specifically, but you can probably guess. He was one of the founders, so very much at the center of the business. He had very much the same attitude, and that was that particularly at the early stages of the development of their business, an accident where there were injuries or worse could have been fatal for their business model for obvious reasons. It didn't even have to be their fault. I think to some degree you're echoing that sentiment in as much as an accident at this stage could cause the industry, in essence, to shut down. The nightmare, of course, is a collision between a drone and a passenger aircraft. Exactly, and and that and that's really kind of looking at it. it's taking that realistic look to say you know you know we're we're it's really it's the wild west it's like the gold rush right now I mean everyone's going off in different directions hope hoping to you know strike it rich um, but with that comes all the risks as well so I think it's you know it, we have to be prepared for it um, and that's why again it's like and I think that's a lot of the sharing the information back to people it's. The, like I say, it's not an established industry, so part of what we're doing is we have to build the actual client base in the industry as we're trying to build our business, and that's really been the challenge of, you know, the more people we can get out there operating drones and doing it in a professional, safe manner really benefits everyone um, overall because now drones get to be seen as, like, that's a critical part of day-to-day business, where if it stays this kind of small niche area that's, you know, you know people are worried about it, we won't get the explosion and growth that I think is potential. So it's that's kind of part of our, in the back of our mind too, is to you know let's build an industry as well as just building our own personal business. As a private company, you're not required to disclose any of your financial details, but can you provide our listeners with a general sense of how things have gone from a revenue and profit perspective? Is the business turning out the way you'd hoped? It, it, I'll say this: um, anyone that's getting into the drone business thinking it's a get-rich-quick uh, industry, um, there's a lot. Of, there's a lot easier ways to make money. Let's put it that way. Um, it, it's a very much a long-term um, approach. I mean. If you just went out and want to say, okay, I'm going to buy a small drone for a thousand dollars and go off and do some real estate shooting, you know, you're not going to get rich. You might pay for the drone that you bought, but um, you know that it's building up the bigger jobs over time. It's you know, it's such a new area. There's a lot of the clients, you know, trying to even set what a competitive rate is is a challenge because we have a lot of people. Uh, there's people operating illegally, so they're you know giving cut rates. There's people that are 
totally new to business in general, so they're not really pricing their services right. Um, so that drives down things. Um, and then there's just the unknown. A client doesn't really know what they should be paying for this, so they sometimes don't want to pay a great deal. Um, on the other side of that, though, we, we've um, established you know some good relationships with ongoing clients where th- those are what we're looking for is that repeat business, and you know we're we can we know what they're looking for and we can provide a service, but it becomes much easier for us to plan for just time management wise because you know it's a it's repeatability of business. Um, I think that's the longer term end of things where kind of the profitability is. I think right now um, it's such an early stage. We don't look at it as like, you know, we're going to make, make a fortune. Again, it's, it's building that slow business base of, you know, if we can build up enough client base, um, it, it'll be a nice bit of income. But it's certainly, uh, you know, I, I still do IT work. Let's put it that way. It's, it's not a full-time job. No, that, that's a great answer to the question. You did touch on something very quickly that caught my attention, though, and that was whether a legitimate business like Flight Lab, where you're making a real effort to work within the regulations, can compete against those with lower ethical standards. It would seem that those who are not as conscientious as you are in a position to undercut you, given that they're not spending time, any time and energy with regulatory red tape. So that must provide not a temptation to operate illegally, but it must be frustrating for you to find that your competitors can underbid you for work by not going to all the trouble to which you are going to be safe and legal. How do you feel about that, about those people who are operating illegally? Yeah, and I mean, and that's it. I mean, it's really, it, it is frustrating. It's the reality, really, of any business. It, it's not really specific to the drone industry. It's just, it, the drone industry is so new. We, we do have that very Wild West mentality where other industries are a little bit more established. Um, and again, it comes back to that's why we spend a lot of time pushing out that information on here's how to operate legally. Um, you know, here's the regulations. It's, it's as much to make people think as it is to educate. Um, and we would, I have no issue trying to compete against someone that's playing by the same rules it's when someone is you know working against you illegally it becomes frustrating because it's like you know I, the only way for me to compete would be legal and that's not our approach and it's but we're, we're seeing a shift in that now i mean in a lot of cases um you know two years ago a client didn't even know what a drone was or what a professional provider is now we're seeing clients that actually want to seek they want to see proof of insurance they want to see proof of your um, certificate um, so that that's helping move things forward where you know before they might have hired either knowingly or unknowingly an illegal operator now because of the liability issues um, they want a proven legal operator so i think the industry is certainly maturing it's just it's got a ways to go but it's getting there I was just going to say that's part of the natural maturing of the business. You will get pulled from the customer for that because they don't want to wind up in a lawsuit if something went wrong on a shoot for which they contracted your services. Operating well within the legal framework is the best defense in the long term, I would think. In other words, your customers will begin to demand that their drone contractors be a licensed operation and working within the regulations instead of being ignorant of that requirement. There's a lot of coverage on that. Yeah, so the so the media does help with that. And I mean, and that and again, it comes back to it's kind of getting that story out there. Um, and you know, and it's again, the, the clients are new to this as well, so it's a learning curve for everyone. But I think that that's probably what's going to happen long term. It's just uh, you know, the industry will get more mature. Um, you're always going to have a certain segment that you know that, that's you know working under the table or you know skirting the rules. But for the most part, I think you know, you know, in a couple of years' time, that will be less of an issue. On your Twitter feed a while back, you mentioned that you had covered the Blue Nose Marathon. 
in my way of thinking, that sounds like a lot of fun. Can you tell us about that experience and how that business found its way to you? And how did the shoot go? A live event like a marathon must be a real operational and logistical challenge for Flight Lab. Yeah, no, we've actually, we've done the Blue Nose Marathon here, which is, you know, for the for the East Coast, for Halifax, it's a fairly big event. Um, you know, it's it's a big marathon, so it gets a lot of draw, people regionally. Um, and the way that that camp really came about was um, there's another local production company that we do a fair bit of work with, and we had some, um, you know, relations with in the past, nothing really directly, um, that, that handles all the video um, coverage for that event. And then they were looking, um, you know, how can we make, the coverage this year better than it's been in the past to bring a new spin to it, which was at the same time we were starting to do some drone work and had done a couple commercial jobs. And it's like, Hey, let, let's try to do some aerials for this event. Um, particularly when you're dealing with something like a marathon where it's over, you know, it's a large group of people it's outside. It's a very, it's a very visual, um, event just because of the amount of people. Um, so we, we kind of got involved in that a couple years ago. Um, so we've done it the last three years now. Um, certainly a different type of event to do. Um, just from a logistics point of view, it's you're dealing with a lot of people. Um, we're very restricted in the regulations in terms of where and how we can fly. So it's, you know, we get a request, for example, like, gee, wouldn't it be nice to fly the drone right over all the people running down the street? And it's like, yeah, the, Maybe not. It's, so we have to play within the regulation. So a lot of it is really how do we how do we cover such an event, but also do it legally, but also visually appealing. So I think that's that's always been the challenge is to make the client happy, but also not get in trouble while you're doing it. It seems that in any sort of news coverage these days, or in any sort of editorial content at all, there is almost a requirement to have the obligatory br- drone shot in any video. Do you feel that's a good thing or a bad thing? Is that going to create more business or in the long term, is it just going to diminish their value, which implies less interest in them over the long term? People will begin to say, yeah, that's just another drone shot, at which point they will have lost their impact. What are your feelings about the omnipresence of drone footage these days, virtually everywhere you look? Does that help Flight Lab's business or hurt it? Yeah, I think we're going through that fad phase. I mean, it's it, it was really, for us, being in it so long now that, you know, when we first started flying, like, you get a, a camera in the air and it could be the, the shakiest, worst footage you've ever seen and you were wowed by it. Um, the more you kind of are exposed to it, the kind of the novelty wears off. And I think, you know, the, the media is still kind of on that edge of, like, you know, if it has a drone shot in it, people love it. I, I think we're starting to go down the other side of that hill now where um, – People are not necessarily getting bored with it, but it's it doesn't have the wow factor that it once had. It's just it's it's a little bit becoming too overused. Um, you know, it's it's somewhat like you know there was a phase like in Hollywood movies when lens flare was the big cool thing to do. Uh, drone shots are very much the same, and the way that we look at it is, and and we typically try to work with like other production company partners is, whatever you're doing. Aerials is not the only answer to it. I mean, like for we do for the Blue Nose Marathon, we only do the aerial portion, but that's not what's presented in the final product. That's cut with handheld. That's cut with other shots, uh, people in the crowd. Uh, so it's it's a balance. And I think right now we're probably we're probably a little bit too heavy on the aerials. Although I'm not going to complain from a business point of view, but. It, I think going forward, it's going to be people are figuring out where it needs to be used and places maybe it doesn't need to be used, where right now it's like, let's add an aerial just because it's the cool thing, um, when maybe it doesn't really add to the value of the story or the product necessarily. 
It reminds me of when Steadicam became a thing in Hollywood. And the first time you saw it, there was those beautiful floating shots of somebody running up a flight of stairs, for example. I remember being completely blown away by it when I first saw it. Then it became this kind of visual cliche, but Steadicam in the hands of a true artist is still a very exciting technology, even through, through, though it's decades old now. Perhaps it's the same thing with aerial footage in that it will depend on who is operating the drone. They will need not only the technical skills to do the job, but the artistic skills as well. In other words, the drone needs to be in the hands of somebody who knows what they're doing. It becomes a tool like any other tool in the cinematographer's and video producer's kit bag. Would you agree with that? Is that a fair assessment, do you think? Exactly, and that and that's a lot what we do. Like just from our experience over the last number of years, just learning, and we and we learn every day that we're out there. It's like how to make a shot better. Um, you know, a static aerial shot two years ago looked really cool. What we're doing now is like if you don't have dynamic movement in at least two, if not three, different. Um, uh, motions in a shot, it becomes very boring. So it's, which is part of what makes it exciting for us as well is you're always trying to evolve what you're using the drone for. How can I get a different shot using this technology that sets me apart? So it's, you know, it's easy just to fly up, you know, 100 feet, hover in a spot and shoot back at the ground, but it doesn't capture the audience or it doesn't tell a story like, you know, doing something more dynamic. And you're, like you say, your example with the Steadicam is exactly right. It's, it, the, the tool is an important part of that, but it is the, – the thing that I found with kind of the drone aerial business is it's, you know, it's part technology, it's part science, but it's also a large part art. And and with that is, you know, having an eye for what you're shooting, um, you know, you can't just distill it down to just the technical elements. It, there is that artistry into making it look good. Again, to draw a bit of a comparison to Hollywood, you can have these movies where the special effects are mind-blowing, but there's no story to go with them. This type of movie is just isn't interesting. The opposite is also true. A great story, like Blade Runner, for example, is enhanced by creative use of special effects and equipment. Your gallery photos that you host on your website are fantastic because they're from the air shore, but what grabs you is the interesting content that's in those pictures. There's tall ships, a French Navy vessel that was in some of your photos. The content is interesting at the outset and simply enhanced by the fact that it's aerial footage or video. I don't get the overwhelming impression that it's aerial photography for its own sake. Exactly, and the way way that we kind of look at it is if someone looks at some of our footage and they don't realize it's drone footage, then we've done our job, right? Uh, you know, it's if you look if you look at a photo and the first thing you say, oh, that's that looks like a drone photo, then you've missed you missed the mark. I mean, like it was a perfect example. Like when we're shooting a lot of those tall ships, we're not like here's a drone video off a tall ship. No, it this is a video of the tall ship. The fact that it was done from a drone really should be irrelevant. Um, other than you know, it, you're going to get the like. Just because it's from the air, you know, the mind is thinking, well, it has to be for the drone. But w- we try to make it um, as less drone-looking as we can. And, and really, again, it's it, – and it does come down to the subject. It's, uh, you know, if you don't have something nice to shoot or something interesting, it doesn't matter how um, well done the shot is. It's really the subject has to be something that people have an interest in. This show is really about the general idea, like the tagline says, turning your passion into your profession – that may be involved in the drone industry like you are, or maybe something else. Is there one piece of advice you could offer to somebody contemplating making a similar move that is making their hobby into their job? If so, what, what would that be? I, I think it's take a realistic look at the business side of what you're going to need to do and not get caught up in kind of like, you know, in the case of drones, you know, don't just think it's all about flying. You need to have that 
real world look of, you know, hey, if I want to do this, I have to do the, you know, the other 75% of the business that may not be the fun part. And that for some people that can draw a lot away from the hobby. If, if you just enjoy, for example, going out and flying your drone, um, then maybe going into it as a business may not be for you. You have to not necessarily enjoy doing the paperwork, but uh, you have to have the mentality to do that. So I think it's it's being realistic about what you're doing and and looking at it from the big picture, not from just I want to take photos with a drone. But you know what does that entail? It reminds me of that guy that's a pretty good golfer. I think he or anybody who really likes golf thinks about ways of doing it for a living. I don't know about you, Mark, but. For me, one of the best feelings of the world is getting to a golf course early in the morning and there's that kind of smell of the golf course. I think it's a heady mix of freshly cut grass and fertilizer. Anyway, I, th- I think it would be a terrible shame to ever hate that smell, to have turned your hobby into your profession and then realize you wish it could be your hobby again so you could once again look forward to it. Exactly. And I mean, and that is possible to do. I mean, and, and there's going to be those jobs that are, you know, that are not as exciting as, you know, going out and doing something like, you know, shooting a tall ship coming in the harbor. It, it's fun to do. I won't lie. You know, we enjoy doing that. But then there's the job where you're going out and you may be doing like, uh, you know, I'm going to go out and shoot an industrial industrial shot of a building complex. We, you know, it, it's work and it pays the bills. It's not necessarily the most exciting work to do in the world, but that's part of it. It Every job isn't the cool job, I guess. This is the one way to say it is that there's going to be those jobs that are just really there to uh, kind of move the business forward. Talking about the future now, over the longer term, has Halifax turned out to be a good place to base Fight Lab? Have both the locale and the business community worked out well? Do you plan to remain here? Um, definitely plan to remain in the area, even if it kind of you know, re- reduces what we can do from a business perspective. It's it's where we want to base. So I'd, I, re- I would rather pick where I want to live and then build the business around it as opposed to chasing the work, at least at this stage of my life. Um, in terms of if it's the best place, uh, it certainly has some pluses. I mean, we, we have a lot of work going on here. There's a lot of uh, new construction. There's the, um, the the military ship projects are going on. So there's, there's a lot of activity. Um, a lot of that translates to wanting aerial work. Um, on the other side of that is uh, Nova Scotia is not the biggest province in the world. And so it's you're somewhat limited in what you can do just from the sheer numbers of um, companies that are here. Probably the biggest kind of negative recently for Nova Scotia was um, the film tax credit was cut by the government. So TV film production, um, we had done some in the past as drone work, but it was never really a large part of kind of our main core. Uh, But that's kind of gone out the window. So, you know, the thoughts of, hey, you know, flying a drone for the next, you know, big movie production, probably not going to happen in Nova Scotia, at least not for the immediate future. So that, you know, there's better areas like if you're in Vancouver or Toronto um, doing those types of work um, with a drone, certainly there's more potential than there is here. Um, but then, like I say, it's balanced out with other elements. I mean, we, we do a lot of, you know, work around the water um, because we, we're surrounded by it. So that's, you know, a lot of our work involves ships and the waterfront and that, that end of kind of the industry. It seems like that could be your calling card for other similar locales in other parts of the world. You'll develop a reputation, for example, as having a certain expertise in that type of footage, and that may draw you to other parts of the world that have similar requirements. Do you think that's possible? Yeah, and I mean, a lot of it is is depending on the type of work that you enjoy. I mean, we, we certainly enjoy doing work for like TV commercials and film, um, but they're they're an entirely different job than it is working 
like doing an industrial shoot. Um, you know, both have their pros and cons. We we much more just because of our background. We're all all of my partners and I are very kind of that technical background. So doing much more industrial style work. Um, and and again, work around the water. That's kind of our you know our backgrounds and our passion for to a degree. So we we somewhat we never rule out doing aerials on any type of job, but that that's kind of our preferred area. So it's you know. It, it, we're becoming experts in it just because one job leads to the next that leads to the next. So it's, it's like anything, you certainly start uh, developing um, a portfolio that kind of pushes you in one direction. To the question you may have been dreading, what does the future hold for Flight Lab? If you were to look a number of years, say five years down the road, what do you hope Flight Lab will look like at that stage? And, and how will the business have evolved? It's always changing. I mean, we have a concept in mind of what we'd like to do. The the biggest challenge is, um, I don't think anyone really knows where the drone industry is going to go. The technology is evolving so quickly. The regulations are changing so quickly. Um, It's hard to get a clear picture of what it's on. I think wherever it goes, we certainly want to be still involved in it. If it's at what level, um, you know, we don't expect, Flight Lab is not being built to be like 100 100 person drone service provider company um we're very much you know we, we don't necessarily want to be you know say tiny but very much a small regional provider you know we're not we're not looking to take over the world but we're certainly not opposed to doing jobs outside of the area either if the opportunity comes a knocking you will answer the door is what you're saying certainly we, you know we're always open to every potential um possibility we may not take it it may not fit with what we want to do but uh we, we've not really kind of established like you know Here's the box that we work within. We're, we always we enjoy a lot of the things that fall outside that box, and if and if we can put our skill set to it, we'd like to get involved. And and the same goes the other way. If it if it's someone comes to us and we can say, well, that's not really our forte, we take the that approach as well. It's like we're not the the people for that job. You're better served by another provider. It's you know it's a balance of doing something that we know we're good at, we have an interest in. Um, so. It, it's balancing it because we we do want it to be um, it's got to be an enjoyable job to do it. We're like I say we're not just in this to make a quick buck. We're in it for we enjoy it. Um, so we want it to be uh, kind of you know keep our interest in it long term. So it doesn't just become like uh, working in a salt mine where it's like oh I got to go out and fly that drone again. You've made an interesting point, and and that's the whole notion of work not being work is that it should be something you should enjoy. So what you said, I think, is that you're going to keep the business in a form and at a scale where you where the work continues to be enjoyable in the long term. Otherwise, like you said, it's, it's uh, like working in a salt mine, an interesting and different kind of salt mine, but a salt mine nonetheless. Exactly. And I mean, that that's really the key. It's, you know, we, we've all worked in different, like I've been in the IT industry for the last 25 years. It's like, you know, this is somewhat of a new career, but it involves a lot of our background talents. But it's like, the key is we want it to be enjoyable. If it, you know, if it becomes a, just a chore, um, like I say, there's easier ways to go to make money. So if you know, we're, we're not in it just for the money. It has to be, it's got to make sense business-wise, but it also has to, you know, kind of uh, feed that creative hunger and, and keep you wanting to get up in the morning. When it gets, if it gets to that point where you're starting to dread it, then, you know, maybe then it's time to move on. Um, I don't think that's going to happen in the short future with the drones, but, you know, if it does get to that point, it's, you know, maybe that's the decision down the road if, uh, you know, maybe, maybe there's something new out there that's the new exciting thing. But I think at least, you know, for the immediate future, um, you know, 
even now we go out and do a job, um, you know, even that it may not seem like an exciting job, it's, uh, there's always that fun aspect that you, you know, you're actually, you know, you're flying a drone up in the air and you're shooting, you know, video. It's, there's always that wow factor even for us. As we get to the end of our time today, Mark, I simply wanted to say how fascinating this has been. You have provided a ton of inspiration for those who might want to get into the industry and you're in more generally those that have some sort of special passion and have thought about turning that passion into a way of making a living. You're living proof that that's possible. So thank you, Mark, for sharing all of this with us. Oh, no. And th- thanks for having us involved. And I think it's, uh, I-, I think the whole discussion and that topic of, you know, making the hobby your work, um, you know, maybe another way of the way that we look at it is, is you know, doing something that you enjoy and, and maybe not having that separation of hobby and work. It really becomes do something every day that you enjoy. And if it's your hobby or if it's what you're doing as your full-time job, it's just, you know, life's too short to kind of not do something that you enjoy. And I think that's, that's kind of the one key takeaway is, uh, you know, the more you can enjoy it, the, the better your life is overall. For those of you who would like to see examples of Mark's aerial photographic and video work, and it's well worth taking a look at, we have posted pictures on the Work Not Work website, which can be found at worknotwork.show. The Flight Lab website is flightlab.com, which is to say F-L-I-T-E-L-A-B.com. It also has lots of pictures and videos along with various ways you can get a hold of Mark and the other folks at Flight Lab. Mark, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show, and you've set a very high bar for future guests. Thank you. Oh, thanks for having me, and uh, yeah, I look forward to uh, hearing some of your other interviews too. Thanks, Mark. Well, that's it for the first episode of Work Not Work. Phew, that was nowhere near as bad as I thought it was going to be, (laughs) at least from this side of the mic. Please let us know how it sounded from your perspective. Our website is worknotwork.show, and our series of podcasts can be found on iTunes. Simply look for Work Not Work in the podcast section. And we're on Twitter, of course, at Work Not Work. If you were somebody who has turned your passion into a profession or know somebody who has, please get in touch with us. We would love to hear from you or from them. We also look forward to hearing your feedback about the Work Not Work show. The show is written, produced, and hosted by me, Terrence C. Gannon. The Work Not Work show is wholly owned by Interlog Inc. of Calgary, Alberta, Canada. All rights are reserved. Our theme music is Working for Friday from the Lionfish Music Group located in beautiful Brooklyn, New York. I would like to dedicate this premiere episode of Work Not Work to my mother and father. You taught me to never settle, always work hard at what you love, and never, ever give up just like you never gave up on me. Thank you, Michelle, my lovely wife, for your support and your infinite patience with yet another loopy idea. Finally, thank you, our faithful audience, for supporting Work Not Work, the show about people who have turned their passion into their profession. Mm-hmm.